We're back. Why right. do you get to start the podcast if I'm the one who hit record? Well, the few times I've asked you if you wanted to start, you said, no, that's your job. So I just always assume I start without asking you anymore. All right. Fair enough. Carry on. If you want to start it, go for it. No, no, no. It was just a question. Wasn't wasn't an inquisition. And we just watched Harry Potter in the Deathly Hallows part one. Part one. Uh, so before we get into the movie, let's do Stephen's fun facts uh, as we've become accustomed to uh, for the past six movies. Now, this movie came out on November 19th, 2010. It was directed by David Yates. Once again, cinematography by Eduardo Serra. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh, here's the fun one. Uh, the budget on this movie was $250 million U.S., um, the budget of 250 million was split across Deathly Hallows part one and part two. They filmed these, I don't know what the proper terminology would be, at the same time, consecutively, back to back, without a break in the middle being the point. So uh, they kind of somehow were able to really save budget. I don't fully understand that one. That's fine. Danny, would you care to guess how much money this movie made? A lot. Okay, well, um, you want to put you a number. You usually give me multiple choice. You usually have uh, oh, some I, options. Is that what I do? Okay, I'll give yeah. you multiple choice. I'll give you four. Did it make A, $834 million? Did it make B, $897 million? Did it make C, $977 million? Or did it make B, $1.05 billion. I'm going to go with the 937. 977. Ding, ding, ding. You are correct. This movie brought in $977 million in the box office. Would you care to guess where this movie ranked amongst the top movies of 2010 in terms of uh, global box office revenue? I'm going to say, so the last two ranked at number two. I'm going to go, I'm going to throw out number one. You would be incorrect. Um, it, this movie finished third in the 2010 Global Box Office Revenue Rankings. Would you care to have a guess as to numbers one and two in any particular order? 2010. Toy Story 3 and Alice in Wonderland. Toy Story 3 brought in $1.066 billion, and Alice in Wonderland brought in $1.025 billion. I mean, I get the Toy Story one. Yeah, I'm not really sure what's going on with Alice in Wonderland. Um, Johnny Depp. Well, yeah, but come on. But otherwise, I'm just like, I don't, that's not one I, I wouldn't have even, like, guessed that. I'll tell you what, I distinctly remember seeing this movie with my father in the theater. Do you have any memories of going to see this movie? I was in AmeriCorps. And we saw it in downtown Denver. Yeah, we saw ours at this beautiful, massive new movie theater complex in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The name of it's escaping me now, but it was the place that once it opened, all of us went on dates to. I did not go on a date there with my father. Let me just clear the record on that. I just, that was the place I was in high school, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
really big movie theater with like comfy seats, like fancy. It wasn't like a place where like the carpets were sticky. Like it was, it was a really cool movie theater. Um, yeah, I saw it there with my dad. I remember that vividly. What'd you think about this movie overall? I like it. Um, it is captivating from the beginning. I don't think I had the same reaction when I first watched it. And I think perspectives change when you already know what number two is like, but as a standalone, I feel like you're like, well, that's not a great ending, but no, I liked it. I felt like I was like in the story from the start and I feel like it's been a few movies since I really felt like I was in the story. What about you? Before I get into what I thought, I want to touch on something you just said. A, a, a philosophical question for you. When a movie is announced with part one in the title, therein implying there's a part two. Can you slash do you view part one as a standalone feature or or can you only view it through the lens of it being you know an incomplete work? Because and I asked that before before you give your answer, because I agree, if you view this as a standalone, the end is kind of crappy. Um, but calling it part one in the official title, uh, quite not even implies, says there's a part two, which means that it's, you're not the end of the, you're at the end of the movie, but you're not at the end of the story. Um it's like if that if that was the ending we had gotten any other iteration of the series, I would have been like, uh. That's not great. And a stupid cliffhanger like that. It, yeah. But because it's, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how you feel about that. I think you can look at it as a standalone, but when you're going specifically more so when with this series, most likely we all saw it within the first few weeks of release, which means we knew there would be a waiting period. Unlike people who saw it once it was already released, they could watch part one and part two back to back. But when you look at this as a standalone, it's a cliffhanger ending, which is frustrating in and of itself. But I understand because they split it into two parts. But then you have that long wait in between. Because like even when we were waiting for the books, each story had a solid ending. Like you knew there was still more story, but you got to a conclusion somewhere and this one you don't get to a real conclusion you're just like oh we are now paused until the next thing comes out yeah fair enough um that's where i I liked the movie i i don't it's funny i don't think i had as noticeably positive of a reaction to watching it as i did when we watched order that may be because I wasn't necessarily expecting to like order. And I did, whereas I knew I liked this movie. And this one's always like ranked movie. pretty high for you. Yeah. So like, I liked it, but I, you know, I found myself just watching it. I didn't find myself necessarily like, Oh, that was really good. Oh, that was really good. Um, yeah. Overall, I, I, I liked it. Um, all right. You want to dive in? Sure. Yeah. So opening, opening scene, you get the uh, Warner Brothers logo in the sky. I really loved the music box kind of sound of Hedwig's theme. It was it felt very mute, like you know, old timey music boxy. And then of course you had that tension note of the orchestra. Um, 
again, another very dark movie uh, visually. Um, first character we see on screen is Bill Nye, is Rufus Scrimgeour, the Minister for Magic. Danny, any idea where else we've seen Rufus Scrimgeour? Because I've mentioned it so many times. We have talked about this because I always make up Bill Nye the Science Guy reference. <laughs> Do you fear death, Danny? He is, of course, Davy Jones in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. It's funny, whenever I hear him in one, it reminds me of the other. Like when I when I see him as Davy Jones and he's like, Do you fear death? I'm like, oh, that's the ministry remains strong. And then the vice versa. Um the opening music, a lot of what you get after the, the Rufus Scrimger stuff, right? You're going through that montage. Very sweeping, very beautiful, kind of like this upbeat classical music. In a way, it reminded me a lot of Downton Abbey for those listeners who have who have seen Downton Abbey. Um, I thought that was a very different musical choice. Of course, we have a new composer for the last two films, uh, Alexandre Desplat. I'm going to butcher that name. Apologies to, I believe he's French. Um, really, really beautiful music. The last thing I'll say, and then I'll pause for 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 you, Danny. Um, Michelle Fairley, uh, Lady Catelyn Stark, plays Hermione's mother. Um, I have a lot of notes throughout this movie about um, people who I've seen in other things who were in Harry Potter. Um, what do you, what do you think about the opening montage and set of scenes? I think the scene of Hermione at her house and everything it's it's a beautifully done scene it's very sad but it's like beautifully done and there's essentially zero dialogue in the whole thing did you like is an odd word did you how did that see how did that scene feel for you in terms of its impact i think it's it's the only glimpse we ever see of hermione's life outside of the wizarding world yeah, I the scene fell short for me. Um, I, I I have to imagine right because we'll just skip ahead super quickly. Right, Hermione obliviates her parents. Then a couple scenes later, like twenty minutes later, obliviates the Death Eaters, and you're meant to feel the emotion of her obliviating the Death Eaters because she obliviated her parents. I really would want to think that. There's either dialogue and or filmed scenes on the cutting room floor that gave you more emotion with Hermione and her parents. Because um, I, I get what they're going for, but it just, it was, because it's, it's literally the only time we get them throughout the entire series, to your point. And so I just don't, I, I, I get it, obviously, but yeah, okay, sure, you know? Yeah, I I think it was impactful without dialogue i don't think it needed dialogue because we also we haven't met her parents that i feel like dialogue would just be it's the first time we ever see them at all beyond the little moment and were they in diagon or is that just in the book that they're there books okay so never mind we never actually see them in the movies so i think it's fine because they're showing the point that hermione is now literally just like Harry is, does not have anyone. Yeah, I, it, I agree. It didn't need dialogue there and then. And that's, I think it, Yeah. whether there were more scenes of montage in the this movie, or as we've talked about before, this movie falters from the sins of movies past. 
right? Just giving us a little bit more history. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. Um, next, we're at Malfoy Manor. Anything you want to talk about here? I have one note here. The Voldemort Lucius scene. It's very well done. You've seen how far Lucius has fallen, even just by his look. That's really all I have to say on that. It's just like, just how it was handled. And it really like gets that point across. Yeah. The thing I really loved from the scene was the very end the button on it. When Nagini slithers onto the table and Voldemort goes, Nagini, do not. And Ray finds kind of like juts his like jaw a little bit at right before he says dinner, almost as like he's coaxing the word out of his mouth. And then he says like dinner. It's just a really cool line reading. And it's just one of those uber creepy, like oddly sensual yet coldly powerful. It was, it was just really good. It's another movie where (laughs) I love Ray Fiennes. It in that scene, he's like kind of like weird Voldemort smiling through it, and it just felt creepy. You know, he's thinking about getting it on with Bellatrix in one of the other rooms of Malfoy Manor. This is a thing I can say with confidence because this past weekend I saw Cursed Child on Broadway, where it is revealed that um, your boy Moldy Voldy slithers his snake into uh into no it's in the it's in cursed child i saw it it's official um privet drive question for you based on our experiences together as well as based on what i've commented on in movies past on this podcast can you guess what the first thing i wrote down about the privet drive scenes was for anyone who has seen the Privet Drive set at the studio tour in London, or as both co-hosts of this podcast have seen the traveling exhibition that at various points has been around the world, but was at uh, Celebration Harry Potter 2018 knows the wallpaper for number four Privet Drive is like a pretty bright pink. It's not umbrage bright, like bubblegum pink, but it's pretty bright. And so the first thing I thought when I saw this scene was, oh, my God, I can tell just from this one scene how much filter they put on this movie to drain all of the color. Because the the pink <laughs> wallpaper walls at Privet Drive almost look gray. Um, so that was, the, that was like one of the first things I noticed was, oh, God, they really just are doing everything they can to get rid of color in these films. Daniel Radcliffe just is amazing. Like, I was, like, paying attention to him as other characters and just how he even like when they weren't speaking like off to the side he just did awesome yeah the one thing i i had here was fred's just trying to diffuse the tension line is something i say all the time i I won't say it in front of normal people because they don't know what the hell i'm talking about but in front of people who know harry potter i will use that line all of the time um really liked that um the chase scene can I go back to the polyjuice scene quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate, and we talked about this in Chamber, 
I hate that their voices don't change. Like Hermione straight up says, your eyesight's terrible. Well, if your eyeballs have changed, why does your voice not change? That just bothers me. Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I don't have an answer to. Listeners, if you have an answer as to why their eyeballs don't change but their voices change or whatever you said switch that yeah whatever um creating magic podcast at gmail.com creating magic podcast on instagram creating magic cp or something like that on twitter pc PC, that makes more sense as i said it in my head it didn't make any sense um i didn't love the on the ground parts of the chase scene when when the bike's like in the highway or whatever it felt way too cgi for me uh, I love the stuff in the air, which is ironic because that's even more CGI, but maybe because there's less to render because it's just like clouds versus like a bunch of moving cars. It, yeah, it wasn't like thrown into the middle of something that's sky is very different than vehicles driving on a highway. It did make me think of the Hagrid ride, though. I really think that should be like the ultimate pull quote from this podcast for eternity. Sky is different than cars driving on the highway, Danny. Uh, it's it's the ultimate analysis that we do here at Creating Magic. Um, it did, yeah, the Hagrid. I didn't think about Hagrid when I watched it. Not going to lie. It was when they hit the purple button and see, they, the, like it does that jump. See, when they hit the button, all I could think was, wow, they just knocked out power for like a solid 500,000 people <laughs> in like a London suburb. Um, that's where my mind went. Um, but I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, Hedwig's death meant nothing to me in the movie no. at all. I wasn't barely registered until like later on when Harry's like Hedwig. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't love that. Um, the burrow is rebuilt. It's no longer in flaming embers. Not a fire. It's like magic. Uh, you want to know the two actor notes I have here? See if you can guess both of them. Well, you're only going to be able to get one of them. Let's see if you can guess one of the two. Tom Gleason. Yeah, I wrote General Hux. Um, and then of course, um, for all of my big mouth fans out there, the shame wizard, David Thewlis, um, oh, you know, it's the shame wizard. And that will make sense to a very small subset of listeners and probably maybe two at the most. So, uh, you're welcome. Big mouth. Tell our listeners. Richard. No, no, we have at least like seven. Um, like them Hopeason. When I wrote right the resistance this weekend, I was like, Bill Weasley. Um, thing I don't love about this scene. Well, I don't love this. This the part from the books I wish they kept in is in the books. Harry's absolutely hammered during this burrow scene after the chase. They all drink after Mad Eye dies. And Harry's just everyone's trying to accuse Hagrid of being the loudmouth. And Harry's just slurring his words, being like, ah, it was, ah you know, it wasn't. Um, shout out to Binge Mode. I can still hear Jason in my head describing that scene pretty clearly. In the morning, you have the best acting Bonnie Wright does in the Harry Potter series and the most chemistry between Harry and Ginny that's ever existed on screen. When Ginny says, zip me up, will you? And she's showing all that back. And it was, it was, it was, it was a good look. And then Harry does, and 
Then they kiss, and I wrote love, all caps, underscore. It was great. There was romance. There was passion. There was a little bit of heat in there. It was, I loved it. It was phenomenal. That was that was what I've been wanting to see from the two of those crazy kids for a while. Uh, and then the last note I have on that is George is a little fucking freak. George is sitting there just watching his sister get all horny. And I look, I, all I'm saying is I have a younger sister. I have no desire to watch her do anything remotely sexual at all. I don't even want to see her hold her husband's hand. I'm, I'm good. Live your life. In, I don't need to see Remember that. that scene where Hermione is like on Ron's case because he's like freaking out because of Dean and Jenny. At that the three is broomsticks. you. Well, all I'm saying is George is just sitting there. They're making out. Her dress is half undone. And George is just like smirking, drinking coffee. Like, morning. Morning. And like. She's the one that came down with a zipper. No, 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 no. I'm not. That's all. I'm not arguing you. All I'm saying is you see your sister making out with a dude. You either stop it. Like you either make your presence known pretty loudly immediately. Or you turn around and leave. You don't sit there with a smirk on your face and watch your little sister make out with some dude. That's odd. I felt like his response was completely in character. But it doesn't make it any less odd. It may have been in character. Doesn't make it not odd. Also, I just want to point out, George is drinking tea or coffee here. I'm going to assume coffee because it's the morning. Penny, for your thoughts. But it's also England, so it could be tea. Uh, I'm not, you're correct, but where did you lean on this? This is important. If he was drinking coffee or tea in the morning? It is. Just stay with me. I don't see any relevance. Stay with me. Was he drinking tea? I, I don't know. I'll go with tea. Okay. Because I don't like coffee, so. All right. Well, Listeners, I'm assuming he was drinking coffee. Just stay with this. We'll come back to it in a couple minutes. Um, when Arthur, this scene, when, when they're lifting the tent, I have not loved. I have loved specifically Mark Williams, Arthur Weasley's choice of how he says one, two, three. Typically, uh, typically being in my experience. When you do a count or a countdown, you get louder as the numbers progress, right? So it's like one, two, three, you know, like you, your voice goes up as you get closer to the number that the event's happening on. Arthur goes one, two, three. And it's just, it, it's counterintuitive and it's so delightful. I really love that. Um, I don't know why I love that so much, but I really did. Tent has gone up. Yeah, but ten has gone up. Then the Minister for Magic shows up. Oh, right. Yeah. I have a philosophical... So I wrote Will down, and I couldn't remember what I meant by Will, and it's Dumbledore's Will, and now it's plugging. Well done. Um, so, of course, this is where Davy Jones gives the items to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Danny, my question for you, philosophical question. Mm-hmm. When... 
Hermione argues that the Sword of Gryffindor belongs to Harry. Question for you is, who does the Sword of Gryffindor belong to? Genuine question, not not rhetorical, not, you know, sarcastic. I don't think it actually has an owner. I feel like it is one of those pieces, like in a museum, but it belongs to the estate of Hogwarts. That's what I'm saying. So, like, Rufus Grimjor in the books and movies gets a bad rap, and it's largely well-deserved because he's, you know... He, he makes some choices, but I got, I'm with him on this one. The Sword of Gryffindor belongs to Hogwarts. It doesn't belong to Dumbledore, therefore it doesn't belong. Like I disagree with Hermione on it belonging to Harry. Yes, because it and it's known that it'll appear for those who need it, and therefore it's Harry's not going to be the only one that ever needs it. Yeah, I, well, I just like it would be like me declaring that the bookcase that was in my freshman dorm belongs to me because i used it all year no yeah. it belongs to the college they're the ones who yeah, yeah. I, I i bumped against that i was like well no it, it does belong yeah. to like doesn't davy jones is right the wedding you're up the wedding wedding away bill and floor get married um i enjoy seeing luna it's our first time seeing any reference of the hollows around Xenophilus's neck. However, we don't get the, like, Victor Crumb, there's a problem with the symbol. Yeah, it's a wedding. We talk to the other humans about Dumbledore. Harry is not in disguise. Yeah, we also don't get the, what is the point of being an international Quidditch player (laughs) if all the pretty girls are taken? We don't get that either, which I love. Uh, but he did film for that movie. You just never see him. Yeah, yeah I'll give a shout out here. That whenever I see Bill and Floor's wedding now, I am reminded of the lovely pin collaboration uh, between three of my good friends, Admit and Tweak, Sunset Roadco, and Laser Brain Patchco. They released some beautiful Bill and Fleur wedding pins in a box. Cooler thing they did, though, beyond that was they released all of the, I believe it's Pantone, the color codes, you know, for all the different, like the thematic of the box, the six or seven colors they use, and encouraged any creator in the community to join in and release pins around the same time that were using the same color scheme. So I think like upwards of like 20, 25 shops ended up releasing a bunch of pins right around the same time that were all super pretty and creative and cool. And it was a really nice moment for the pin community. So. Stina, Dylan, Nikki, Jeanette, Ross, um, shouts to y'all. That was that was really, really well done. Um, in terms of the movie, the Death Eater chaos at the end of that wedding scene, I love that. I thought that was great. Yes. Like, I think there have been times where, like, there's been scripted violence that felt too scripted, right? Like, it was like, mm-hmm. you make a move. Then I stop and I react. And it felt like, like an old timey duel. It's like, well, let me now tell you what I'm going to do next. And then right. we go. Right. This was just chaos. People were left and right shouting. I did noise. appreciate when um, oh, Dumbledore's friend. Daedalus Diggle. Had, no, like, that that's, a lie. Oh, no, that's a lie. Alphias Doge. Yes. And he like makes a point to be like, see you. Bye. And like actually like end his greeting and then leave. He's like, bye, Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, that was good. All right. So they, they apparate out. They're in London. And they go to a coffee shop. Is this the same coffee shop? 
from earlier or is no because that was at the train station from earlier no 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 that, yeah no, no, that, that was at the tube station uh not some coffee shop here's here's where i this is this is where i um would like to bring up my earlier point hermione orders a cappuccino and the way that harry and ron say what she said and same to me felt like they didn't really know what a cappuccino was Harry, that doesn't make any sense. I grew up in a muggle home. You know, this is my here's, but this is where I'm going with this. I both when I read it and when I watched it, because that a similar scene happens in the book. It's like they don't know what cappuccino is. I almost had a debate for Harry because he was sheltered, but then I'm like, no, I literally just said he hung out at a coffee shop in a train station, and he grew up in a muggle home. Yeah. But my question then is... Well, like, for me, like, I can't tell you fancy coffee drinks. I hardly can tell you the size. No, but you know what... You you know the word cappuccino. Yeah. I'm not saying you could tell me the ratio of milk to coffee in one, but you know what a cappuccino... Like, you know it exists. Yes. So my question is, is coffee slash cappuccino, like, dentist from Half-Blood Prince? Do wizards just have no idea what the hell coffee is? There's no way that muggle students did not find a way to bring coffee into Hogwarts. You know, during Owls, there there's some underground coffee bean sharing happening. But I'm, but I'm saying, like, the way Ron's like what she said. No, I know. I know. It's like he's never heard of it before. It's like when Slughorn's like, is being a dentist a dangerous profession in the muggle world? It's like these people clearly don't have dentists or drink coffee. Maybe that's why they don't need a dentist. But like, what? It was astounding to me. Anywho, anywho. Um, They fight the Death Eaters. My only comment here. How weird was it when Ron like, like kind of caressed Hermione's face? He was like touching the part where she got cut, but he did like this very like tender kind of like a little, like a little tender knock against the cheek. And it was very odd. You pay attention to very interesting things. no it, it's when it's when he says no i, I know exactly you do what you're it. talking you're the best at spells it's like i it was very odd this is this relationship is one where for six years anytime there's like a hug between the two or an accidental bumping it it gets very awkward like yeah, it's very awkward it's very like move away from each other yeah but now ron's like very caressingly or very care carefully caressing her face it just, it just felt odd it felt very odd and again this is a scene where it feels like they were missing some bit of dialogue that they dropped between hermione obliviating her parents and hermione obliviating them because it's clear they're doing a tie between when she did it you know but it just felt like it was missing like maybe harry asking her somewhere in between the two scenes like Oh, your parents okay? And like she or has like to exp- her mentioning right. It feels like they they cut something because it feels like there's a middle scene in between those two that was missing. That's all. Yeah, grim old place, and our dear friend creature. Yeah, I I, I have no notes on grim old place. I mean, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, whatever you want to talk about, but it's a place. It's named Grimwald. That's what I got. Rab has been discovered. Yeah, again, there's no color inside of Grimald Place. That's all I could think about when they were going inside of his room. or It's just black and white. 
Uh, and then we immediately go to the ministry break-in, right? Like they get, they get what's his face, Mundungus, Dobby shows up, the whole thing. But then um, like immediately we're going to the ministry to break in. Like no, no nothing. No planning. We're just going. No scoping out. Because the book spent a lot of time on them back and forth, making a plan, figuring out how they were going to do it. What did you make of... Let's split the ministry scenes into two bits here. Pre, pre uh, Harry attacking Umbridge and post. What'd you make of the pre? I don't know if I had any like major comments. Like the this was another one where they kept the actors' voices, which is which just annoys me. Um, I think they all did the the actors that were pre- portraying them did very well. Especially the guy who plays Ron. I don't have any like specific notations on such things. Yeah, I just think it was funny how Hermione's like, remember, don't talk to anybody unless you don't have to. Like, try to look natural. Then they show up and immediately the three of them are talking to each other. And, like, you find out immediately that Runcorn and Cattermole, Harry and Ron, aren't people who would be talking to each other. But it's like, that feels like a major deficiency in their plan, where they walk right into the heart of the ministry. They're standing right at this Nazi muggle tower, and they're just talking to each other. I feel like people would be like, hey, why are they talking? Like, that doesn't, I've never seen that before. Yeah, like, something's already off here. Yeah. Also, that 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 Muggle tower that they had installed, you know, with the Muggles being repressed, literally, right? Uh, thing you can see at the studio tour. I've seen it. Danny hasn't. Haha. But more importantly, they really brought the Nazi vibes with that. Um, that like the architecture of it, right? It's this. Uh, all those architect listeners out there are gonna slam me because I don't know the technical terms, but. It was built very much in a way that a lot of Reich architecture in Germany was built. That's meant to make the viewer feel feel small and obsolete and unimportant kind of in the face of such immense, highly angled kind of power, right? Um, Boy, that was a, a word salad of a sentence, but in my head, it made a lot more sense. Here's the thing. Speaking of the before. In the books, the spell that Hermione tells Ron to use is Mediologinx Recanto for the reigning in Yaxley's office. Why did they feel the need to change it in the movies to Finita and Cantatum? Like, A, I just don't, there's no reason for it. Like, it's, and then, but, 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 but B, Finita and Cantatum is like a pretty basic spell that we've heard at many points. Everyone should know it. Are you trying to tell me that like seventh year Ron doesn't know stop spe- the stop spell spell? Or that the person whose office is it doesn't well, know that, how- Or that. Or that. See, but then on this, in the theme park, guess what reappears with the weather wand? It's the other one. Oh, Meteorologics Recanto? Yeah, it's the umbrella. It's the spell at the umbrella that makes it rain. In Diagon. Yeah, it just, yeah, it was odd to me. Because, um, like, two minutes later, Harry's doing, like, 
uh, wordless magic making papers swarm around Yaxley, yet Ron doesn't know if Anita Quintana. That that didn't track for me. Um, I'll tell you one fun thing I got, though. Again, still in the before. When Runcorn Harry is rounding the corner to go to Umbridge's office, that's the same corner that we get in Fantastic Beasts. When Newt is chasing Pickett and Newt's foot fetish is first established because Lita's, I think it's Lita's, right? Her feet show up. Yep. And I, I was watching the scene today. I was like, oh my God, that's the Fantastic Beast corridor. And I don't think I realized when watching Fantastic Beasts that that was, I have to imagine, the exact same set from this. So that was really cool. I liked that. Nice little draw. Um, yeah, so the trial, the trial happened. I don't got anything on that. Um, I really loved Yaxley's way of casting spells. When he's coming out of the elevator and he pushes the people, he's kind of like, he's like flinging them, but he's not fully extending his arm. He's kind of like, listeners, you can't see what I'm doing, but he's got his arm, like he's flexing his muscle such as it is like kind of at the side of his head, but then he's just flicking his wrist as he walks. And there's like this like disdain and like anger and like just kind of coldness to it that I really, really appreciated. It was like a really cool choice for him. And then um, when they're running through trying to get to the fireplaces and you get like that panning up of the ministry and made me really want to have the ministry in the parks just because like you saw like, I don't know. Not that statue. We can go with a different statue, but oh, the Nazi statue. Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> yeah, in the parks. Let's not let's not have that. But like the scale of the buildings, and it had that diagon enclosed feel. It would be cool for the new park. So I'll tell you what. I've watched a lot of spy movies, spy television shows. I've read a lot of Cold War stuff. Are you a spy? Uh, I can't confirm or deny that when you're trying to escape from somebody and you want to cover your tracks so you can go hide again, you don't go directly from the scene of the crime back to your safe house because they're still going to be on your tracks. So this is kind of a big Hermione fuck up. When you can apparate to places and not be traced, but this wasn't full apparition. This was flu powder. Which is bizarre, which is really, it's really, in my head, I was like trying to figure out because Harry wasn't connected to them. In my head, I was thinking as apparition and you were right. So I'm like, how did Harry end up with them? He's, he was not with them. Got it. It's it's, like, when you know, someone is tailing you, you don't lead them back to the safe house. You go somewhere else first, confirm that you've lost them. And then you proceed to your... Hermione doesn't have a lot of fuck-ups throughout the books or movies. This is one of them. It it gets gets overlooked. Yes. And the fact they didn't have, like, a if we get separated, let's meet here and then go back type of plan. There was no actual, like, where do we go next? Um, I'm just saying, Hermione doesn't screw up often in this series. Um... But this was a big one. Yep. You lost your safe house. I would have loved also, as long as we're talking about book to movie stuff, all the scenes from the books where there's a bunch of Death Eaters perched outside their house. Yeah. Like, the, 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 I would have loved like with like a little comedy kind of music underneath it, right? 
almost like a Weasley-esque kind of, you know? Yeah. Um, it would have been really fun to see, like, day one, one Death Eater. Day two, two Death Eaters. Day three, the entire ministry. And work. then, like, the muggles just, like, walking, like, a muggle walking down the street. I'm like, what is going on? Like, that would have been very funny to me. I would have appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're in the forest. Yeah. I mean, this is really just the build-up to the Ron and Harry fight. That's what the next, like, five minutes, ten minutes are. Yep. Pretty much, but we learn Hermione is super prepared, even though she fucked up the last one. Well, no, we already knew she was super prepared. We already knew she had the bag a lot earlier. I know, but it's like when she's like tells Harry to set up a tent, and he's like, "Where am I going to get a tent?" I thought that was stupid. That was was, yeah, that was stupid. It's Hermione. Where do you think you're going to get a tent? We we already established like half an hour ago that Hermione has this bag, and she said she's been preparing for weeks or whatever. That was just like a stupid. I don't know. I that, that felt dumb to me on Harry's yeah. part. Um, All right. Ron and Harry have a fight. Yeah, I thought that was good. Um, I don't think this was Rupert Grint's best movie, but I don't think that's because he did anything wrong here. I just think he did better in prior ones. This uh, one's also more emotional driven for his character than anything else has really been. Yeah, well, so, so I, so I, I agree. I think in the past he did a lot more with a lot less in terms of opportunities to show off acting. Whereas in this movie, he had what would have been for 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 Dan or Emma like a very average movie in terms of the types of scenes he was given, um, and he did good with them. Um, but I thought he just did a lot better with a lot fewer opportunities in past ones. Yeah. But yeah, they fight and you know, it, it, it's good. I think, you know, the way that he delivers his lines, the way that they, they argue, the way it all builds works really well. Then he's off, he's gone. Uh, I gotta say, throughout these whole this whole set of scenes, the the locations are beautiful. Yes. Um Michael Harm was the as far as I could find the, the location production manager for the film. So the guy who was in charge of the team that did location scouting, and this is the first movie in the entire series where I would argue, not, not even uh, probably a majority of scenes were filmed off of sets, right? Like these were all, a lot of these were on location. Um, That's also the first time you're actually Seeing not just Hogwarts. Well, right, and, and, and but still, even in the past movies, when they're away from Hogwarts, they're yeah. inside of a set. They're at Grimwald Place. They're at the borough, yeah. right? Like a lot of these are just in nature. Um, Michael Harm also worked on, among many many other things, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yet another tie-in. Uh, he passed away in 2017, but um, yeah, beautiful location scouting for this movie. And that rock formation that Harry and Hermione are tented on. Yes. Um, I believe that's where the dance happens. Um, that rock, it's like top of like a mountain, and the rock has all these like like crevices kind of cutting like a checkerboard through it. It's just super pretty. How um, do you feel about the dance sequence? I'm fine with it. I, I've seen re- recently some people have been re-watching the movies like that hate that scene and I had never had a problem with it so I was surprised to see that there is like people that are just like it's anti that scene (laughs) this is going to sound ironic coming from me someone who does nothing but express a lot of 
extremely strong opinions on this podcast. I think sometimes people just look for things to to have controversy over um, because it's been forever since we got new content and they just want to stir shit up. And I know the debate about Harry and Hermione and Ron and Hermione is not a new debate, mind you, but I thought the scene was fine. The way I interpreted it was Hermione is deeply depressed. Harry knows, and we know from the movie that Harry knows that she likes to dance because the Yule Ball, she dances. Right. One would also safely assume that just in the common room over the years, right? Maybe if there's music playing, she's the one to kind of do, you know. Point is, I did I I interpret it as he knows this is what his friend needs right now. And he's all right, yeah. hey, let's just, you know, see if we can diffuse the tension, right? Like it just let's let's, let's escape for a moment. Yeah, it, it I I didn't read anything into it. I think you can accurately read the scene right as the dance ends, as the producers dangling the Harry Hermione shipping kind of for for viewers right there when they have that awkward kind of stare at each other. But the dance itself, I was fine with. I I had no issue. And let's head to Godric's Hollow. This was a big change, book to movie. In the books, they are um, under Polyjuice Potion. Um, I really actually liked the change, and I really liked Harry's line about why. His reasoning. Said, yeah, this is where I was born. I'm not returning as someone else. I really loved that. Um, I liked. I liked the feel of it. Like it felt very. It felt how I how it was in the books, like empty streets, Christmas day type of situation like midnight mass happening like just the feel of it felt very true to the books even though there were some changes and then they go to the cemetery because that's not creepy yeah you're never catching me going to a cemetery at midnight (laughs) at any time but yeah um that music that they sang in the church you can hear kind of as they walk Mm -hmm. really pretty that brought me back to so many choir concerts i did growing up um thought that was beautiful um you know it's it's funny because hermione says before they go like going there is exactly what Voldemort would predict don't let's not do that but then they go so harry clearly wins they don't go under any sort of protection or or uh cover they're themselves they're not under the cloak which has conveniently disappeared from the movies. Um, like they're not hidden at all. And then the two most wanted juveniles in the wizarding world, not hidden or obfuscated or anything, walk straight up to the graves of Lily and James Potter. It's like, all right, guys, come on. You got come on. Like, yeah, you, you, you can't, you have to either be, poly, again, I, I like it's, the change, but you have to either be polyjuiced or under the cloak. You, yeah, you like, do I either. like the change, but it's also like another, like, three broomsticks versus the hog's head. There's no one around. There's nowhere to blend into. You're the only ones out on the street. Yeah, and, like, they chose to, like, casually stroll down the village street rather than going straight to Bagshot's house or, like... Yeah, very odd. Like, hey, we're here, whatever. I didn't understand um, 
I guess maybe we don't get it in the movie, so fair enough. But book readers know there was a statue of Harry and his parents uh, outside of Godric's Hollow. And then also like a little like sign that like magically I, I, there was no memorial, um, which I thought was odd. Um, I guess you don't get it in the movie canon, so fair enough. But uh, Bethel the Bagshot is Nagini. It's creepy. It's really all I got to say on that. It's creepy. I don't get why. Well, actually, no. Why the does hell? Harry? Why does Harry try to use a chair to defend himself against Nagini? I don't know. He has a wand. Not for long. Well, right, but he has a wand. I know. And he's like, hey, I'm a wizard going up against a mega magical snake. I'm going to use this bar stool to try to protect me against said snake. Never mind the fact that I have a a magic gun in my pocket. I'm going to use a stool. Yeah. Didn't get that. Nope. And then Hermione has to save his butt. And his wand is broken in the process. And now we head to the Forest of Dean. So we find out who Gellert Grindelwald is for the first time. Yeah, I don't know that I care, though. I don't either. It was just like one of those, like, now that the movies are out, you're like, okay, there he is. Yeah, yeah it just, it doesn't, irrelevant to the singular plot of the Elder Wand. But not really relevant whatsoever to the greater no, plot because, of Harry like, Potter. We understand he's having the like the flashbacks and Voldemort is like searching for a wand, but it's it's also not necessary. Yeah, Ron comes back, saves yeah. Harry. We get the sword. Get the sword. Ron kills the Horcrux, and they have that really weird Horcrux scene. Yeah, that's bizarre. Very bizarre. I thought the scenes after that. Where Ron comes back and they're talking with Hermione and she's like attacking them. Were very funny. They were good. I like those. <laughs> I really like the like Harry wears my wand and I'm like, how is she gonna curse him? Like, what is she gonna do to him? I thought those were all good. Uh, then they go to the Love Goods. I liked the Love Goods house. I like the outward visual of it. Yeah, I don't have any comments on it. It was fine. Wow. Um, the three brothers illustration I've always loved. When they yeah, the story. yeah, it's beautiful. It, it's absolutely beautiful. I remember the first time watching it, and a couple, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, this is going on a bit, um, but it is very pretty. It's the stylization of it yeah. is just beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Um, very nice. Uh, here, here are two questions for you. So Voldemort's name is revealed to be a taboo that brings Death Eaters down upon anyone who say it, mm-hmm. who says it. That would turn up anybody who was presumably in the Order of the Phoenix, because those are the only people who are going to be using Voldemort's name. Why doesn't the Ministry also, if they were smart, the, this evil Ministry? I mean, Harry is a common name. You can't, like, Harry Potter is not going to be a name you can taboo because a thousand people are going to be saying Harry Potter any given day. Ron's a pretty common name. And, you know, so you, you probably, but Hermione is, like, not a, I can't imagine there's a. Hermione is actually traditionally a very British name. But should, common or just the fact that it's because, because I'm saying, like, how many Hermione's are there in the British wizarding community 
that are alive because if they were smart, they would have put a taboo on that because Harry's going to wake up one morning and be like, hey, Hermione, where are we going today? Boom, right? Instead, you're waiting on a needle in a haystack for someone to say Voldemort. How many times a day do they say Hermione? Anywho, that's all I'm saying. If I was trying to get these people, right, put it on a common word, they would say, but a word that isn't commonly used by people other than them. So when a word becomes taboo, does that include if muggles say it? Or is it only when wizards say it? I have no idea. Because, like, muggles aren't going to be saying Voldemort because they don't even know what that means. They're not going to be saying Hermione either. There are when Hermione is a name of humans. It's not, though. But it is. No, it's a name of one. Okay, I know you've been alive for, like, 74 years. But before the books came out, did you ever hear the word Hermione? Not as a name. The answer is no. I heard half of the name pretty regularly. Okay, no, that doesn't count. No. I All I'm saying is that would have been the easiest way to get to, to, to actually get Harry. Because the group of people who would be saying Voldemort is like, what, like 30 deep, 35 deep, right? Something like that, roughly. The gr- The amount of people who would say Hermione like maybe Mr. and Mrs. Weasley and then Harry and Ron. So in 1996, Hermione ranked as number 974 in England and Wales with 21 Hermione's born. Yeah, I feel I feel vindicated here. Let's move on. Feels like the scene with the Snatchers was straight out of a Power Rangers episode <laughs> when the when the main Snatchers like what are you waiting for? Snatch them. And the snatcher says, snatch them. It's like, oh, come on. What are we it's like doing? It's, it's the, the evil villain tagline. Like, what are we doing here, guys? And also uh, the fact that, like, I know they get caught in the end, but two of them are literally in the middle of all the snatchers, and they all just stand there looking at them. Because yeah, they I have to run by the other snatcher. Well, so they didn't trigger the taboo when they got to their point. So... Theoretically, what was stopping Harry and Hermione from apparating away? I didn't because they, understand. Don't ha- they never have a plan and don't figure out where they should all well, I, end up going together. Yeah, but still, like you, know. you, can, you figure that out later. Even if you don't have a plan, just get the hell out of there. You know, like yeah. I didn't understand that. I just at I was all. always baffled that they Ron didn't just go. runs right past them. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. bizarre. Well, it's always just like they always like had to operate together to a place. So I don't understand why they weren't smart to be like, you guys, if something happens and we are going to get separated, this is where we all need to go to meet up. Yeah. But I instead agree. they all just like operate together and let Hermione decide, but no one ever has a backup plan. Yeah. I just, I just didn't understand why they decided to run through the woods away from these people and then not try to escape via yeah. apparition. Um, so they go to Malfoy Manor. You get the love of my life, Bellatrix Lestrange, um, who again is spot on. Oh, the um, Hermione Bella scene. Oh, be- it, it's beautiful. It's haunting, but it's beautiful. Oh, yes. Um, Luna, that's a curious thing to keep in your sock. It's just a perfect <laughs> line. Yes. Dobby dies. Dobby dies, but Wormtail doesn't. At least Wormtail is not confirmed to be dead no he's just in a pile at the bottom of the stairs yeah does not choke himself out with his own hand 
as he does in the books. That was a miss on the movie's part. Maybe they were assuming uh, viewers wouldn't be able to call back Azkaban. I don't know. Might have needed like more explaining, like why that happened. There just might have been more explanation because of how quick those scenes are going. It might have just been a weird transitional period in there. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Uh, That's where I stopped taking notes, but Dobby dies outside of Shell Cottage. It's like the end of the movie. Well, not no. Dobby dies outside of Shell Cottage, and there's a lot of slow scenes of them burying Dobby. Um, And then finally, you get Dumbledore's tomb. Voldy getting the Elder Wand shoots magic into the sky. Movie over. Yes. Okay. What was your favorite scene from the movie? I don't want to say favorite because it's a weird scene to choose as a favorite, but the Hermione Bellatrix scene is just so well done and acted. And it's just like a powerhouse of a scene between the two of them. Yeah. I I was going to say from the moment Bellatrix appears outside of Malfoy Manor to the moment Dobby apparates them out, Bellatrix, Helena Bottom Carter's scene kind of set of scenes was phenomenal, but for differentiation's sake, uh, after, after Ron destroys the Horcrux, um, from that point on through, um, before they go to the love goods, um, when Ron is just comedic talking about the ball of light and then let's have a vote on it. Shall we? And Hermione goes berserk like that. I love that. That was all good. I also thought it was interesting stylistically, at least when I was watching tonight, it looked like from the second Hermione and Ron saw each other for that set of scenes in the forest right there, mm-hmm. there was a lot more color they brought back onto the screen. It looks like they lightened up on the on the black and white filter a lot or whatever tint they put over it because it, it, it looked like there was like more color, which was nice because it, it matched the tenor of the scene. So I liked that. Uh, who won the movie? I think the trio. I think they all did. Specifically, Harry, Hermione, Dan slash Emma. It was just this movie depends on them. Like, yes, they're the lead characters, but this movie specifically, there aren't scenes, there's very few scenes without them in it. But I think it was our little trio. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going behind the camera for this. I thought, again, Michael Harm and his team doing the location scouting. I mean, that was just absolutely beautiful stuff that they did. I mean, the Forest of Dean all of the different kind of mountaintops and forests and the set of scenes where they're in a field and they're in a barn, then they're underneath like a, an overpass. Like those were just beautiful. Like they were absolutely beautiful. And it's, I guess we said one of the few times where from a production standpoint, you're able to flex beauty that goes beyond something we've already seen on screen for six movies and or something that's done on a set. You're actually going out in location. And I thought they just nailed it. Um, I'll give a consolation runner-up prize to Alexandra Desplat, the, the composer. Cause I thought this, I thought the music, not that the music has been bad in any of the past couple films, but um, 
I think the music isn't as present or as much of a character in the last couple of movies. And I thought the music was really, really beautifully done here in, in part one. And I think it will be as well in part two, as I remember. Um, what was the most surprising thing for you from this film? Um, I would say surprising. I really enjoyed the pacing of this movie. And I think is there's been a few movies that like after rewatching them, the pacing's been a bit of a struggle. And this one, I like, I didn't feel like this was too long. I didn't feel like it was dragging. I just like, I did enjoy it from beginning to end. Yeah. I don't know. I, now I think that honestly, the thing I'm most surprised about is what you just said as for who won. I didn't realize maybe until you said it even how dominant this movie is in terms of, the trio screen time and 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 obviously they're off by themselves or the majority of it so it makes sense but they really stripped away any other interaction or scene that brought another character so this really is like a man I know you get the snatchers i know you get imelda staunton and yaxley the ministry i know at the beginning you get the weasleys and lupin and all that but this really in terms of like your main cast, I mean, Snape has like a minute and a half at the beginning. McGonagall's not in it. Uh, Dumbledore's there in the one flashback, and then he's in his tomb. Uh, Hagrid's in it for a minute or two. Like they, they really minimize. Like you know, use a basketball metaphor. They cleared the lane, and and mm-hmm. you know, even like the little things like the radio like you never get the references of fred and george yeah you don't get uh the whole lupin part is taken out you don't get dean walking through the woods with Mm -hmm. uh ted tonks and uh, cresswell or whoever yeah um yeah any other thoughts this is where you ask me what i think i'm gonna think about part two steven what do you think about part two Oh, I think it's going to be, I remember it. I mean, I've seen that one a lot recently too. So remembering isn't that far back in my memory, but it's like an action movie. Um, it's like something that works as a standalone action feature, right? Like I, you know, substitute exploding cars and guns for wands and, you know, an ancient Scottish castle. And you know, it, it could be any mainstream, you know, action thriller. Um, I mean, you get a lot more Ray Fines in the next one, which I'm looking forward to. I love that. Um, you get a lot more Alan Rickman in the next one. I'm looking forward to that. You get a lot more Maggie Smith in the next one. I'm looking forward to that. And it, it may, half the movie's on fire, so, you know, whatever. But because it's on fire, you get a lot more color. And I'm looking forward to having color on my screen for the first time in, like, six films. Because uh, I'm getting really tired of how drained these movies are. As I said, I think last time in Half-Blood Prince, I would love to see a recut of all these movies, but with, like, full color. Because I think it would drastically change for good, in a good way, the movies. Um, what about you? Um, I know the pacing is going to change. It's almost like an opposite pacing to what we just had. 
it's really picks up. I haven't seen it in years. It's been a while since I've watched that one. But I'm excited to see it. Our rewatch is almost over. Well, no, we still have two Fantastic Beast movies to rewatch. Can't yeah. wait to do that. Well, we're going to wait until we're closer to the release of the new movie to do that rewatch. So we can be refreshed before movie three. Okay. Well, I have nothing to comment on on that. So on that note. No, I have something else I want to ask you about since we have just done this rewatch. Oh, okay. Well, we haven't finished it yet. We haven't, but this is about movie one. Okay. Because there's an article going around how Chris Columbus would like to release the three hour cut of movie one. What do you think about that? Chris Columbus also wants to direct Cursed Child. Chris Columbus wants a lot of things. He does. I mean, we are getting the reunion that was announced today of our trio on HBO. A lot more than just the trio. It's like yes. 10, 10 or 12 actors. Yeah, there's kind of more. Show. We're finding more and more people that are going to be part of that as it's announced. Um. Look, I think one of the cool things about the advent of streaming services is that production houses no longer have to put millions upon millions of dollars into distribution of content to have it be seen. I'm sure there has to be some editing and kind of final production work. To, to release a three-hour director's cut, you know, similar to how, maybe, maybe not to the same extent, but similar to how the Snyder cut, you know, they had to pump multi, they had to put like $20 million into that, which is excessive. But, you know, the same way you have to do some stuff to get scenes that were cut ready to be viewed by the public. I understand yes. that. But instead of having to spend millions upon millions of sending it to movie theaters around the globe, you can just put it up you know, you download, you you upload the file onto HBO Max, and there you go. I would love nothing more than to see director's cuts of all eight of the Potter films, and even, honestly, the two Fantastic Beasts. Um, if only because you have the audience for it, you have the platform to do it at a fairly inexpensive rate, and I'm no... You know, I'm no analyst for Warner Media, but I have to imagine it would drive tons of revenue towards your subscription service. So I'm all about it. That's all my questions. All right. Well, I'm sleepy. So I'm hitting the end recording button here. And we'll see you all next time on a great episode of Creating Magic Podcast. Bye. Bye.